0: Probably the best school radio station in the world. This is Bry Radio, proudly sponsored by the BPA. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to a pretty brand new initiative we've got here a brand new podcast series, the OB podcast series. So great that we've got that. And uh, yeah, it's brand new to Bry Radio. Uh, set to feature, well, pretty much most Fridays from now on, 5 till 6pm. And this week, kicking off the incredible series, hopefully, uh, we've got Nick Radford, um, an OB. Uh, he graduated from Bryanston in 2002, I believe, and I think he's here to tell us all about his journey, well, of Bryanston and since Bryanston. So welcome, Nick. Thank you so much for coming and great to have you here. Thanks very much, Ollie. It's a pleasure to be here. So Nick, uh, we're gonna dive in straight in, I think. So just talk to me a little bit about your time at Bryanstone. It's quite a broad question, you know, kind of what what well, what led you to Bryanston and what did you kind of take from it really? Well, we're gonna dive all into it, but yeah, just from the beginning.
1: It's not just a broad question, it's a question that's a long time ago now. I, yeah, oh, I appreciate it. it yeah. <laughs> so but um I have such wonderful memories of being here. It it really was. Um my, my wife teases me actually sometimes because she I have said that if I could repeat five years of my life in a block, it would be the five years that I spent here. It really was a um yeah, a h really intensely enjoyable um period of my life. And um and I love coming back. It's great to it's great to come back. It just came up with my twenty year reunion, which is why I'm it's fresh in my mind how long ago it was. Um but the journey to Bryanson to answer your question, I mean that was that was an interesting one because um uh, ever since i've left i've been quite interested about it, in understanding what what is bryntown what does it mean because when you're here it, it, you're just at school right and you, and like everybody else you're you're doing what you do when before the, you're 18 you're 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 at school so so how did it what did it, what, what but, but it's also evident that it's kind of something special or something different about this school than 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 other schools and you quite quickly realize that once you kind of leave and um And and I've been thinking about these things recently because of the reunion and uh, and a a, a moment which happened before I arrived, I think helps me understand what Bryanston means to me and what I think it is. And that was a conversation I had with my dad when we were trying to choose which school I was going to go to. And so we were looking around the southwest and we went to Sherbourne and Millfield and Canford and we managed to narrow it down to either Canford or Bryanston. And I remember sitting with him, wasn't over a glass of wine at that age, but, you know, on the balcony of the house. And he said, well, where do you want to go? And we said that, you know, if I go to Canford, I'll end up being a successful lawyer or a banker or an accountant or a doctor, you know, a a reliable, steadfast career. But if you go to Bryanston, who knows what you'll be? And that for me just sums up what it meant to be here at this school that sense of freedom and creativity which it instills in you I think for the rest of your life um, and yeah and I've, I've never looked back never never regretted my time ever and, and as I say I absolutely loved it
0: yeah wow what a what a fabulous answer And I totally agree I think um, as you say I don't think there's like a promise about Bryson you're not guaranteed to become uh, an accountant a lawyer or anything like that I think that the options are so vast and, you know, you have so many different avenues to explore. And I think that's almost, I think the kind of um, the school dress is actually quite a good metaphor for that, actually. Um, As in, you know, no one looks the same, as in there's no kind of school uniform. You know, everyone looks slightly different, meaning that, you know, they could go on to be something entirely different to what the person next to them is. Um, which unlike other schools in my opinion but no fabulous fabulous answer so you said Canford and Bryanston is there obviously <laughs> you, you were drawn to Bryanston just that slight bit more I mean what were your kind of first impressions of looking around both schools what did you, what did you immediately think That that
1: that is a, g- a good question and I have a really mundane answer um, at that age I, I, I was choosing the school based on how good the toilets were that's wonderful that was high criteria because i was i maybe i could look back at this maybe in hindsight but if you know if they're paying enough attention to make their toilets decent and you know that then they've got to be getting the rest of it right you know um because and it was kind of it was like a bit of a um that kind of old-fashioned boarding school was still around i mean maybe it still is i don't know i don't go around schools you know much but um that kind of Quite grim, quite harsh, quite bleak kind of sense of a boarding school was was still kind of present twenty years ago, and Bryanston was almost ahead of its time. It was kind of it was clear that they put thought into, I guess if you were a business, you'd call it the customer experience. Like what what's the like lived experience of the pupil at this school, and and I felt like Bryanston had thought about that. When and, and and maybe the toilets were a bit of a metaphor for me for like well if they're getting that right then maybe they're getting the rest of it right so Bryson had the best toilets is my answer that.
0: <laughs> that's good to know no I mean <laughs> I can confirm they are pretty well from my experience <laughs> I think they're pretty good too so yeah. no, that's a great philosophy um actually so I like that um when you arrived at Bryson, what what again I not kind of first impressed but who did you kind of Meet that really kind of stood out to you in hindsight and at the times you kind of have a best friend that stuck with you or like a a favorite teacher or um yeah what in terms uh, of relationships so stuck out to you i
1: had a I had a couple of different tutors over the course of my time here and um not because i was a problem student but <laughs> because um that one of them left and um and then i changed but and and i because i actually when i first arrived i i met a guy one of the staff and I was like I really wanted to be my tutor but you kind of got got allocated to somebody different and so I was on this mission over the first couple of years to get Doc Adams to be my tutor because he was like my hero and um, he taught me biology initially so Mike Adams uh, he's he's not here anymore Um, uh, but he was I think a legend in his own time um he was never seen in my memory never seen out of a tweed jacket with those you know nice little suede like right. elbow patches um and he was this kind of quintessential i mean he's still alive you could well be listening to this so <laughs> be careful what i say but I don't want to characterize him too much but um no i mean he was this kind of quintessential biologist that had been like in the field he'd spent a good part of his career in the Amazon rainforest catching butterflies and would just recount us with these crazy stories, many of which were probably deeply inappropriate these days, but but just made you laugh, you know, and just, he was just this character um, but very caring and very kind and incredibly supportive. Um, And so, yeah, so he, 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 for, for me that, again, that kind of he embodied that sense of freedom through creativity of thought which which is which I think is such an important part of Bryanston, and um probably considering the career that I've ended up having, I think he was was yeah something of an inspiration, so yeah that was he was my he was my uh my my favorite uh teacher at Bryanson, and ultimately became my tutor
0: oh, I'm glad to hear that you kind of managed to manage well <laughs> you managed to become your tutor in the end that's kind of quite a nice happy ending, i think, which is really really nice um and in terms of like pupil relationships, did you do you have, like, a kind of... Um, like, a, is there, like, a strong group of you that you've kind of... I mean, you know, looking back in hindsight, you know, 20 years later, is there kind of that still... A, a friendship group that you kind of still keep in contact with that you had when you were here? Or have you gone your separate ways? How, how, how has that kind of transpired over leaving Bryanston?
1: I think it ebbs and flows, Ollie, you know, that this bit, there's definitely been periods in my life where I've barely been in contact with anybody that I was here with. But it's... They're the kind of friends those relationships you build in the house, in the boarding house, with those 15 other guys, you can not see somebody for 20 years and then you go and have a beer with them or lunch with them or you meet up and you hit off exactly where you left it. And so, the I, I mean, one one of the genius parts of the Bryanson boarding system, because boarding school can be complicated, right? You know, there's lots of people that don't enjoy it and it's not a good experience for everybody. I've never met anybody who's been to Bryanson who's... Given that account, because I think they manage it really well, and and I think for 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 the boys to have the D in the separate houses, and then you have that opportunity to kind of go up into the senior house, and certainly at our, in, in in my time, you had a you had a choice or, or, or a preference. You could express a preference of who you wanted to be with, mm. and um, we got really lucky, and there was fifteen of us who we all were good friends already in D, and we were looking back, we were definitely nerds. Um, we spent a bit too much time sat in our boarding house. They, so it was just at the moment where the internet was becoming big, right? Like 97, 98 the internet was just becoming a thing. And the school decided to put in a local area network across throughout the whole school. But they hadn't realised that what that meant was that we could play these like massive like multiplayer games across the school. So we <laughs> just so, so, sit at our boarding house like playing these like when we should have been doing our homework. Um, so yeah, so we had a great vibe and dynamic in 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 the house. I was in Shaftesbury. In the real heart of the school, I love that house, and um, yeah, so the, a really good group of friends whilst we were here, and definitely kept in touch with some people since, and um, rekindled that actually recently with the with the twenty year reunion. That was a really nice opportunity to re meet old friends, and and um, it's kicked off a whole load of new socialising with kind of old friends which has which has been really nice
0: definitely must be very nostalgic for all of you in that 20 year reunion but we'll we'll come to that a little bit later kind of later down the line um and i mean as you said you know the internet kind of developed and um grew as you were here how how would you say it was hugely different when you were kind of in you know in sixth form in a3a2 compared to in d like socializing did that change a lot um or did it fundamentally say the same in the terms of did you all play ping pong still in like D and in A2 or did that like change a lot like yeah explain to me really i yeah, just no, haven't worded that in, in terribly I, well no i think
1: I, I think i because no but that's it's an interesting point you're making because the internet is now such an integral part of all of our social lives oh 100% but then it wasn't at all right we 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 arrived at school and I, the internet just wasn't a thing and then by the time we left, it, it was, and we were, in, I, I, even by, and, and again, testament to the innovation, which Bryanson embraces so often, I remember preparing assignments that were websites. So within five years of really it not being part of anything, which any of us did, five years later, we were in A2 and we were like, okay, well, I produced a website for my assignment. Um, so I think that it definitely changed the way we learned um remember the first electronic whiteboards were being introduced by the time I was leaving um i wouldn't say it changed the way we socialized actually because social media was still a decade
0: away mm. um and so it it was having an impact on our lives but not on our social lives no, that 's good to know that's really that's interesting and as you um and kind of reflecting actually on you know um i think doc adams it was doc yeah, adams your doc adams. your uh, your incredible biology uh <laughs> tutor and teacher. Um, now, you mentioned about how he kind of had stories about the Amazon and kind of butterfly catching or, so, you know, something along those lines. Um, is, well, I mean, your kind of line of work sounds, is, is did that kind of have an, an impact on your line of work? I mean, it's, you know, kind of both abroad, both kind of nature, wildlife related. How did, did that kind of have quite a huge impact on your career path? I think so. I, I, I think it's... It, I think it's a very difficult thing for all of us
1: to do to truly identify where our motivations come from. Um, you know why does that person love English literature and go off and study that or why does that person want to be a doctor mm. and there's, i mean look, there's plenty of discussion and debate about why those things happen um, and I think a very strong part of that is the teachers that you have when you're at school and I was inspired by not just doc I mean there was doc Carney, I think is still teaching here, yes. he was my physics teacher. Total inspiration to me. Idris Barkham, who I think is now working in in the careers, again, she was my biology teacher in A3 and A2. Total inspiration to me. So I had lots of great teachers, but the connections I made with the ones that were in science, and I guess then that maybe that also um, played to a predisposition that I had for science and for for that kind of um, thinking. And so, yeah, that definitely set me off on a path, which with some meandering... Um, but turns along the way has led me to a career where, yeah, I now work in wildlife conservation. I've spent the last seven years living in Africa, um, and yeah, I, I think that definitely start was the start of that journey.
0: Wow, no, that's that's incredible. And leaving school, did um, did you well talk to me about you know kind of your subsequent kind of year or two after leaving school? Did you kind of delve straight into that kind of line of work or? Did you kind of have a year out or go to university or, yeah, mm-hmm. when did you kind of, yeah, yeah what, what kind of happened after you left school? So,
1: yeah, gap years were a big thing back then. Mm. I think, I, I hesitate to put a percentage on it, but it felt like the majority of people were taking gap years. Um, not sure if that, that's still true, but, um, and I, I I thought, well, you know, I'll apply, had my sights set on Oxford and I applied to Oxford and I think, well, if I get in, I'll go and if I don't, then I'll take a gap year. So I went straight to university and I studied biological sciences and um, that was a big reality check. That was, you know, you, you go from doing well at Bryanston to like, then you get to university and everybody who's there has done well at mm-hmm. their school. And so suddenly you're not top of the class, you're in the bottom third. And so it's a, it was a humbling like, reality check of like, okay, well, I'm not cut out to be an academic. I don't want to just do the intellectual, which is maybe what, if you'd asked me when I was 18, we were having this interview 20 years ago, I'd have said, like, yeah, I want to be a researcher. I want to, you know, be an ecologist or work in a lab or do something like that. And I quite quickly realised once I left Bryanson that what Bryanson had equipped me with was was a wider base of skills than just pure academic research-focused application of, of, of my interest in science. And so that, that, that was my experience of leaving, was um, one of the great things about uh, the Bryanson system is that when you get to university, everybody around you is like, what is this new way of working? I have all this freedom, and you know, I don't know what to do with it. And some people go a bit like, off the rails, but because we were doing it, you guys are doing it, and you do it for five years, you get to university and, and you're like, well, what's all the fuss about? We've been doing this already. Like that kind of self-motivated, like more creative, independent, flexible way of learning it's just normal for us and so that gives you a real advantage when you do get to university um, and everybody's different um, but for me yeah that pure academic thing wasn't wasn't the, the way I wanted to go down and um, so I ended up actually going into I was quite interested in politics and so interested in the interface between science and, and politics and um, environmental policy was kind of what I wanted to do what I wanted to do at that point point. and so my first job was um, in politics actually I
0: worked in the House of Parliament Wow! Wow! And that, that in itself sounds amazing. So, talk to me a little bit about that kind of that job and that kind of that role. <laughs> after I've yeah, I'm I'm sorry, super interested. It's Everything like... they say about politics is true. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to
1: know. <laughs> um, it's it, it, it's look. I, I mean, I, I started off as essentially as a civil servant. I was working for him at MP, and I was writing briefings for him on the scientific issues of the day. He was on the Science and Technology Select Committee, and our parliamentarians need to be informed. And um, I enjoyed that job, it was it was interesting, but um, then I quite quickly became involved in party politics and um, then I ended up standing for parliament um, in the 2010 general election for the Liberal Democrats in Salisbury. Um, I was the youngest candidate in the country at the time, I think, or certainly when I was selected. Um, that was a fascinating experience. Um, I'd highly recommend it. Um, not necessarily being a candidate, that's not for everybody, But um, certainly being engaged in frontline politics, whether it's party politics or not, or whether it's campaign groups or whatever, interest or motivation the person has. But I think if you put any group of people in a room for long enough, politics happens. All politics is, is people organising themselves Mm. and deciding how they want to conduct their lives together. That's all it is. So we don't have a choice. It'll happen whether we like it or not. And so you either engage or you don't. And you, you either engage constructively or you don't. And so yeah, I, I, I really enjoy well, I well really enjoyed it, I probably didn't enjoy it that much when I because it, isn't, it is it is hard, you know. Like people attack you and it's and, 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 and that was then and this is now. And you know, you look at the like tone of our public debate today and it's and it's so much hotter and confrontational and it's um yeah, I can't imagine kind of going back into that world really. Um, but you know, I, I, I gave it a go and I, I did it and I made a small, very modest contribution to the public debate and, and I enjoyed that
0: No, that's great, I, great to hear I, I agree, it's kind of, I, I feel in politics sometimes there's a bit of an element of, kind of every man for themselves, in a way. it's quite um, um, targeting in a way, some of the, some of the um, stuff being said, but I think it's, it's as you say, it is, it is true eventually people will find a way to organise themselves. Um, I think we've got to learn to play the game, not play Yes. Right. I think, I right, think right. that's the
1: mistake we're currently making as a as a society. We we attack the player when we should be playing the ball or play the game, you know. Um but it's 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 become a bit personal, which I think is a shame.
0: Yeah, I think it kind of takes away what um some mm. I mean what politics is truly about in a way, and kind of of dulling it a little bit um but no that's that that's that's really interesting and I mean you've kind of in a way I mean I might be wrong here but it feels like in a way um you've kind of gone from loving biology to kind of uh, developing an interest in politics and in a way coming back to biology is is, is that is that kind of almost kind of horseshoe shaped kind of journey true I I think part of that's
1: true Ollie. yeah I think that um and that's yeah, you know, that's Life does that to all of us, right? You you set off with the best of intentions. Mm. You think you know what you want to do, and then stuff happens, and you make you make decisions. And sometimes you make the right decision for the wrong reasons. Sometimes you make the wrong decision for the right reasons, and and you end up meandering. I think a little bit. Well, some of us do. I did. And um, so, in some ways, it's a horseshoe. But I would say that wildlife conservation, the it isn't really. Look, its its foundation is science. Um, of course, you have you can't protect what you don't understand. You you have you have to you have to understand the ecosystem that you're trying to that you're trying to protect. But the solution to that to the problems that it, face, it faces, and often the face uh, the problems that it's facing, are ones of human activity. So kind of in some ways, people are the problem. But there is absolutely no way which we conserve the natural world without embracing the fact that people are also have to be the solution. And so I, I actually would say that wildlife conservation is this fascinating mix of that pure science, that biology, and social dynamics and politics. And and um, you, you know you can't get anything done without some kind of understanding of politics and, and, and socioeconomic forces and so on. So uh, somewhat horseshoe somewhat kind of but um maybe an integration of experiences um would be how i'd put it
0: yeah right 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 and when you kind of mentioned about human uh activity and impact on wildlife conservation um how far do you think that uh well humans have well do you think humans have helped more so or kind of negatively impact wildlife conservation at least in kind of africa would you say that the human activity has more positively or more negatively affected it to, to date, really?
1: So I think that every individual in this, in answering a question, you know, we look at the actions of individuals. They're all acting in a completely reasonable way, which we would all do. They're trying to feed their families, is the bottom line. Mm. Um, I, I've been working in Central Africa, so in the Congo Basin, and it's one of the poorest parts of the world. So life expectancy in rural areas is 55. Um, the average family size is six, seven kids, m- many of which will die before they're one-year-old. One year um, people are living on less than a dollar a day or less than a couple of dollars a day. So this is a you know, challenged part of the world and it's affected by huge amounts of conflict and war in some areas. Um, massive wars have happened in the Congo Basin where millions of people die and it never makes the headlines in 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 the west it's a somewhat of a for, forgotten corner of the planet in many respects um certainly from the perspective of of, of many of us that sit in kind of europe and, and and america so i think it's really important to just reflect on that in answering your question in the sense that sure human pressure is is, is causing the destruction of natural habitats and the death of wild animals but a lot of that not all of it, but a lot of it is happening because, you know, that guy's just trying to feed his family and he goes out and he shoots that antelope. The problem is, is that it because of population growth in, in remote areas, because of normally because of economic activity, um, such as air, wild areas being opened up to forestry concessions or mining concessions or, or that kind of thing, um, the population's increased a lot next, near and in these natural these wild areas, and so rather than hundred years ago, when it was a thousand people hunting those antelopes and doing so in, at a level which was completely sustainable, it's now ten thousand people hunting those antelopes, and so the the ecosystem can't support the level of offtake which is being which is being placed on it. So then, in terms, maybe I think part of what your question was was driving at is the is the action of the conservation movement and how human activity in that respect is impacting it and whether does it come out on balance or we yeah exactly yeah that, i think right. that was your question right and long intro into your question uh, long, a, a lot of contextual information but no, too. i felt it was just important um I, I i sometimes i feel like i'm bipolar i wake up some days and i'm like yeah we're all going to hell in a handbasket and every and we're doomed and other days i'm really optimistic because um there are big forces at play There are big forces at play here. There's, you know, as I say, there's a much larger population. There's this very understandable drive and I think moral obligation to improve the standards of living of the people who live in these areas. Um, And with that comes economic development. And our model of economic development that we've used up to now is very extractive and very heavy on natural resources. So, if that's all gonna happen, how can we square that circle? How can those people have a standard of life that we, th- that we would all collectively feel is acceptable and still have natural areas which are not overburdened and overpressured? So yeah, sometimes I'm really depressed. I'm like, how do we do that? And other days I'm really optimistic because I do see really important, successful solutions being implemented on the ground where it's working. And we and we and we can do it, and we can get it right, and we can live in harmony with those natural areas. So, um, yeah, I'm dodging your question. It's like it must be something of the politician in me. I'm not giving you like a straight answer. Um, but if I had to come off the fence, I would say that I think we can we can come out of where we are, which is a really bad place. I think that we can come out. Um, well, from this, and I think that we can have a positive impact. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, we, and when we can create a world where we do live sustainably, but that's going to require a lot of people to make the right decisions. Lots of times, mm-hmm. um, and that's
0: the bit that I worry about. Yes, yeah, it's, it's yeah. I, I totally I see where you're coming from, and it's glad to hear kind of um, almost a shed of optimism. And you know, likewise, I'm I'm hopeful um that this kind of movement can really uh take hold and kind of you know become kind of a global kind of a global thing and really people do kind of take hold of it. But um I appreciate I'm asking you a really uh, a kind of a global um the kind of a, a lifelong question really. Um but well um do you think that well um do you think we can if we come out of this, do you think um that we're likely to oh I (laughs) apologise one second that's All Um, all alright well we'll go with this Um, when do you well kind of going into this when did you think that this kind of career choice was really what was really for you so kind of looking back a little bit I apologise about that
1: no it's okay Um, you know I don't know I don't think I did you know at the beginning just all kind of happened well yeah I mean I envy people who kind of go through life with a like big master plan of like they know where they want to go. Um, I've always felt it's a bit like surfing a wave. Just kind of, you're in the sea and you're on a board and you're not quite sure how you got there, Mm. but there's a wave coming and you try and catch it and then you try and catch the next one. And so I know that sounds like, you know, drifting through life, but it's not really that because you know, you choose which wave you want to catch. Um, um so I don't I didn't really set out with a kind of clear intention that this was like this is what I want to do. I just had a notion. I mean, look, I always wanted to be involved in the natural world. I always wanted to be involved in um, in in protecting it ultimately. Um, but to, to simply respond to your question like that would be to ignore the fact that, I didn't really know what I was doing, <laughs> you know. I just, I, I, just followed my wife. She, 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 We had perfectly like, we had perfectly sensible lives here in the UK. Um, I was running my father's catering company, which I was not enjoying, and it wasn't what I really wanted to do with my life. Um, so she was absolutely right. But um, yeah, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't kind of engineered, I suppose. But and there, there hasn't been one moment over the last seven years since I've kind of started in this changing career where. I thought, um, yeah, this 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 is it. This is this is this is the, not not a single moment, just a kind of aggregation of experiences, and and um, I think and it, what it certainly taught me is that you have to be patient. Is that you you know if, if I was waiting for that one moment where I was like, yeah, this is what I want to do with my life, then well, I'm still. It's not that I'm still waiting because I'm pretty sure I found it, but it, there is there was never a eureka moment. It was just a gradual aggregation of okay well you know three years ago i made that decision and we put in place that program and now look that you know that result happened three years later and so you you, it it, it definitely taught me that just you have to take your time and um good things come to those who wait
0: yeah um absolutely It's, it's, it's good advice actually and uh no that's good to hear um so, I mean, kind of looking at pupils, uh, kind of at a pupil base right now. So uh, shedding your kind of pearls of wisdom onto younger pupils. Um, what would you advise for them kind of with similar interests, you know, perhaps interest in, you know, biology and politics, kind of that perhaps that crossover or anything really? Um, what would kind of be your top tip from from both a Bryanston perspective and perhaps when you leave Bryanston and down Gosh. your career path?
1: Right. Um Blimey, I don't feel don't feel very qualified to give advice, but um, well, I, I suppose what I would one thing I would say, I, I, I do get asked this question quite a lot actually because I think wildlife conservation has a you know interesting position in our cultural debate of. I've, it, you know, when you say that you work in wildlife conservation, it's not as if, you know, you're working for big oil or something like that. And I'm not saying necessarily saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying that um, you don't get challenged. It's like, oh, that's a good thing you're doing, going and saving the rainforest or whatever. So it's kind of an easy thing to talk to people about. So then and and people often want to be involved in it. Right. Like protecting the planet is is something which motivates a huge number of young people and older people, but particularly the particularly younger generations. So I get asked that question a lot. How do I get involved in wildlife conservation? And the answer I would give is that what we really need in this movement is we need people with expertise outside of wildlife conservation to come into the movement. So there are a lot of people involved in the movement in, in this sector who, like me, studied biology at university. Maybe then they were more successful in following that life plan and you know what they wanted to do. And they went and took a master's in conservation biology or something like that and they have spent their whole life uh, working in the sector. And they're incredibly valuable people because they've spent their lives working in conservation biology. But if everybody has that same background, you lack diversity. And the problems that we're trying to solve, only so much of it is kind of national park protected area management. A lot of it is, well, okay, um, the, the population living around this national park Need a network of schools because their children aren't getting educated, or they need health health centers, and or we need to help them create sustainable business models, or we need to uh, they need to be advised legally about their rights. Um, particularly, you know, there's a big problem in a lot uh, a lot of around a lot of protected areas about indigenous people and uh, the way that they're being tracked. Um And so we need human rights advocates, and we need engineers, and we need teachers, and we need doctors. And so my advice would be. Caring, uh, wanting to protect the planet can be like this golden thread that runs through your life. It doesn't mean you need to go and study biology. It doesn't mean you need to become a conservation biologist. Go become the best lawyer you can become and then do good stuff with it, right? So that, that would be my advice. Develop an expertise and then use that expertise to to, to save the planet. Um, and, I mean, my modest contribution is that I set up a business and I had a 10-year career in business and a bit of politics, um before i went out there and so that brings i can now bring to the sector a kind of slightly different perspective and hopefully come up with some different solutions and maybe something uh, more creative solutions than 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 i would have done if i kind of just stuck in that kind of narrow field so that would be my advice and the other advice would be on a more practical level um, get in touch with your local wildlife trust here in Dorset, the Dorset Wildlife Trust is excellent. So it's the Wiltshire Wildlife Trust, just to the north. Go get some practical experience volunteering. Um, I used to spend my summers cutting down rhododendron uh, on Brownsea Island, so that the red squirrels, which are still native there, um, still, still, still. Yeah, yeah right. Thriving, one of but... the
0: only places. Yeah. Yeah,
1: um, and the rhododendron kills off the Scots pine, and so then the Scots pine is the habitat for the red squirrel. And so, going cut down some rhododendron is a very hands-on practical way that you can enact conservation here in your backyard and that's just one small example um, but yeah that kind of volunteer experience is is really fun and it, it'll it look really good when you come to apply for jobs um, and, and so I, I, yeah those would be my two bits of advice
0: yeah definitely it's good to hear that you kind of uh, uh, that your main advice is really to kind of endorse a large kind of diversity of kind of um, you know interest and using that expertise to kind of really build on you know um, how you can help world and help other people that's no that's good to hear um and kind of moving like specifically towards your you know you really um your kind of day-to-day life um you know working really hands on in africa kind of talk us through your kind of standards i guess probably every day is probably different to another but you're, you're i guess if there was a standard day what that would be like
1: sure okay um so yeah so for the last seven years i've been based in the republic of congo um, I, well, no. For the first year, I was in the Central African Republic. Um, I had to look these places off on a map before we moved out there. Um, Central African Republic is basically where it sounds like it is. It's in the middle, um, <laughs> and the Republic of Congo. There's two Congos. I didn't know this when I moved out there. There's the Republic of Congo, the Democratic Republic of Congo. The um, countries on either side of the Congo River, and this is this is the world's second largest rainforest, uh, the, the, the Congo. Uh, Congo Basin rainforest, and um, the area where I've been is in the northwest of the Congo Basin, um, and so it's at the intersection between. This is a part of the world that I know a lot of people don't. Uh, it won't be very current in their minds, but if uh, pull it up on Google Maps, and you'll see the intersection between Cameroon, Central African Republic, and Congo, and um, where the borders of those three countries meet there's a ri- river called the Sanga River which is a major tributary to the Congo River and around that part of the river in that northwestern area is um uh, a, a national park where I was on the management team uh, called nu- Nuabali Nwabali Ndoki so you can look up Ndoki N D O K I when that will, you'll fi- you'll find information about it and um so I yeah I was on the um I was on the management team of that national park and so I lived in that rainforest, uh, it used to take me four days to get home, door to door, from from there to I, I live. I've got a house in um, Wiltshire, in South Wiltshire, about thirty minutes from Bryson. Um And that would involve um, hours on wooden pirogues, wooden canoes, going down rivers. Um, lots of hours and bumpy car journeys on bad roads, um, and then various plane journeys and and, and so on. So it's an incredibly remote part of the world. Um, There are not many places where you can still go on the planet, actually, that take you four days. Um, And uh, the house where I lived, um, I didn't have electricity, didn't have running water, long drop toilet, um, pretty basic. Um, And so my daily life would involve, I used to have a little motorboat, because I used to live slightly downriver from the parking quarters. I used to get up at sunrise, get in my little motorboat, go to work in the uh, Parker quarters where I was the finance director. And um, that was my application of my business knowledge was look, we, we had 250 people. Um, We had a budget of five to $6 million. It's like a, it's like a small to medium sized enterprise. And so, and that all needs to be managed. The accounting needs to be done. Um, People need to be hired and disciplined and fired. And um, all that needs management. And of course, you're doing this all in a country and in a part of the world where standards of um, of, of education are very poor. Um, so the capacity locally is um, it's really cha- – really, you're really challenged to try and find people who and, – and the systems aren't in place. Um, and so the funny thing was is I kind of – ultimately, I kind of had an office job um, for about three years when I was out there. I used to sit in an office, but I just happened to sit in an office where there were elephants walking past my window and, you know um, – chimps in the trees and, and all this kind of stuff, um, and so it, um, yeah, I mean, that was that was one role that I've done over the last seven years, and I've done other roles where I was a bit more field based, you know, kind of walking out into the forest um, um, on on a regular basis, and 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 these days, and I actually am much more involved in the in the fundraising um, and the what we call business development around our national parks, so trying to think about how we finance our protected uh, protected areas. I work for a, an American organization called the Wildlife Conservation Society. It's a bit like WWF. Most people have heard of them and they know the panda. Um, WCS, the um, organization I, I work for, is, the, is actually the single largest conservation organization on the planet in terms of people on the ground. So we operate in 65 different countries. Um, and we've been responsible for creating and managing hundreds of um, national parks and protected areas um, across the planet. And what we do a lot of in Africa um, is we are essentially, you could think about it, that we're contracted by the governments to run their national parks for them. That would kind of be a a way of thinking about it. So we have these management partnerships with the government, and that's coming back to our earlier conversation where the the politics comes in. You you can't get anything done unless the government of those countries wants you to do it, Mm. and you do it with them hand in hand, and you build their capacity whilst you're doing it. And you bring your expertise from from outside to the country, um, and so um, yeah. So I and I so WCS. I, I now work on a regional level, so my role looks a little bit different now. I'm not in not in the forest anymore, um, and I look to attract private sector investment to develop tourism, for example, around our national parks, or um, attract funding from. Governments, EU, US, um, or indeed private private foundations. So my my role is becoming a bit more familiar. I think I spend a lot of time, you know, on Teams and um, <laughs> writing emails. Um, but it, it definitely had its moments for kind of years at a time where it was uh, not very familiar. <laughs>
0: So, um, obviously, you had that kind of office job setting, despite how kind of not office your surroundings were, if that makes sense. Right, uh, exactly. You know, you know, said about elephants walking past and all that kind of thing. Um, so, when you were in the forest, kind of um, kind of almost diametrically opposed to that, when you were, instead of being in the office, when you were, when you were in the forest, mm. what kind of work, this is probably a silly question, but no, what, what did you kind of get up to? So, my first
1: role there, um, my f- when I moved down there, so my, my wife actually found a job running a Um, a a scientific program um, in the Central African Republic and I went as a volunteer. And I think they only took me because they wanted her, but that was fine by me. So I I was a volunteer in, um, I was in a a field camp, like a a remote rainforest camp. And my job was to follow lowland gorillas um, every day. We used to walk out and find them in the forest. um, And we used to just track them and monitor their behavior and it's a process called habituation so you habituate the gorilla to human presence and you do that because you want to collect scientific data on it it's what is it eating how is it behaving um uh, but also you can then take tourists to see the gorillas so you create a, a, a an economic opportunity um which can create revenue for the protected area and so yeah i lived um i lived in the middle of that that was really really was in the middle of the rainforest and in a very basic camp i mean like wood shacks and um with the uh, was the only expatriate there and everybody else was a central african republican um most of them were from the baaka tribe which we would have historically called um their 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 tribe pygmies um would tend not to use that word anymore although there are parts of central africa where that word's completely acceptable it's kind of one of these moments where you know um Everybody's trying to work out whether we use that word or we don't. Um, but they're wonderful, wonderful people, and um, just have this incredibly gentle way of life. And this, the, the rainforest is a really difficult environment to navigate through. I mean, there's. I mean, for the benefit of the listener, we're sat what two meters apart from yeah. each other. This studio is probably four meters, maybe three meters. There are parts of the rainforest where I wouldn't be able to see you because it's so dense with wow. vegetation. Vines and marroncasi and trees and and swamp and grasses and all sorts, and it can be incredibly disorientating. There are known instances where people have walked off the trail and they walk around in circles for days and then they die because they just can't get, they just are completely lost. And 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 you can be ten meters off a trail and that can happen to you. So we would never go in the forest without a Barker guide, and it was incredible. You would walk, for, we would be out for eight hours just walking through the forest, tracking these gorillas, tracking these gorillas. And they would see this tiny little bent leaf on the ground. And they'd be like, "Oh well, the gorilla was here a few hours ago. Um, And we'd follow them, uh, follow and follow. And you'd be just completely lost. I would have absolutely no idea where you are. And then I'd say to, you know, Mongo and he'd be like, oh, yeah, camp's that way and it's ten minutes. And they would just have this kind of forest sat-nav in their head where they would know exactly where camp was at any given moment. Um and yeah, so that that really kind of made me reflect on some of the skills that we've lost, right? Um that we were completely helpless um in this amazing, amazing environment which is just completely alive with bird sound and insects and um not not quite as many mammals as people expect. I think people a lot of people who've cut when I first arrived, you think you're about to walk into a David Attenborough Nature documentary. And of course, the thing you realize, and actually I've worked with BBC crews um, and others who've come out there to make footage uh, in the rainforest there. And there's some great footage. If people want to see this visually, then um, go onto Netflix and go to Our Planet. And the Our Jungle um, part of it was all filmed in Nibali and Doki. Um, And um, these guys spend like three months getting six, like four minutes of footage. Um, And so when you're actually in the rainforest, you you really don't see very much but you hear a lot and you feel a lot and you see a lot of complexity in terms of the habitats incredibly diverse um so anyway i'm waxing lyrical about rainforest but i think that's what you asked me to do yeah no
0: it's just interesting to really kind of hear that that different take on on you know kind of what life can be like so you honestly i think um being as privileged as we are at Bryanson, it's so easy, I think, to forget, you know, that these kind of small niche corners of the world really exist and, you know, kind of mm-hmm. that we are all kind of one planet. It almost feels unearthly to kind mm-hmm. of um, imagine that that, that that kind of um, habitat and that um, lifestyle exists, which is which is crazy. Well, um, one of the
1: things which um, one of the physical uh, things which I really noticed was that when I first came out of the forest after about. I think it was about three months i'd been in this habitat and i remember driving out to the local town where there was an airstrip and my eyes couldn't focus on the end of the airstrip because i hadn't seen anything that was further away from me than about 20 or 30 meters for three months and i could feel this like process where my eyes were having to readjust to the fact like okay that thing you're looking at is 200 meters away because the rainforest is so dense i hadn't seen anything that far away for months um and so yeah the the the, there are definitely parts of the world that are completely um almost alien like you said otherworldly to our kind of day-to-day existence and i remember the first time i came back after that first year having spent this kind of year in the rainforest and one of the things that really hits you when you come back to england is how gray it is Greatest place on the planet, um, and everybody dresses grey. It's like, guys, wear some colours. It's like it's, it's already grey enough. Why do you have to wear black to make it worse? Um, and the other thing was uh, just like these simple observations. Where you know, it, one of the things that a lot of people, when I was at Bryson, were talking about was the idea of reverse culture shock or culture shock, but then reverse culture shock. Right? So you go out on your gap year and you go to these crazy parts of the world. And there's all this kind of thought about like, well, is it going to be shocking to me? Am I going to like feel like really different because it's kind of all this and the thing is, is that you actually, I've never felt culture shock because you just things, you just gradually get used to the change, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Sure. You fly on a plane and that in itself is a weird thing. We're in this tiny metal blocks box and, you know, you arrive in this completely new part of the world, but, but ultimately things still kind of unfold before you when you're out in these other places Kind of quite gradually, so you get used to it, so there isn't a shock. But then, when you come back and you've, adapt, you've adapted for for however long a year to this new environment, and then suddenly you're something which is familiar but isn't familiar anymore. And I remember I mean, the thing which really hit me was cars. It was the number of cars that every si- I was on the bus on the way back from Heathrow, and I was like, every single car that I'm looking at, and there are thousands. Each one is worth more than the people I've worked with all year will earn in their entire lives. And, and, and that revelation just hit me of the concentration of wealth in the West. It just blew my mind, like that how, how unequal the world is. And I'm not making a political statement there. It's just an observation. And, and so, yeah, I still get shivers when I think about things like that, that just how different things are um, equally. And I promise I'll stop waxing lyrical but equally how similar things are because actually all of the people i worked with and all the people all my friends and family here we want the same thing we want to be happy and healthy and secure and we want to feed our families and we want to you know find meaning in our lives and those things are common so like we're all the same we just live in completely different places
0: right no wow 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 totally so and i mean again I, i oh i don't really know how to it's again such a big question i appreciate you probably can't answer it but how do you think that kind of dispersion of wealth is there anything we can kind of do you think there's anything that can be done even just slightly to almost reverse that that unequal divide of so much wealth that you know is so unequally um separated
1: uh, Ollie, that's a great question, but it's going to stray me dangerously into territory of making a political statement. No, so. <laughs> I, pre- I
0: appreciate that. I apologise out how dangerous its nature um, was.
1: But, um, look, I, I think that what we have to do is we have to give um, its due importance to growing the economies of the parts of the world which are still developing Um I mean, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that you know that distinction between developed and developing countries is is much less meaningful than it ever was and i think that i think that's very true highly recommend hans rosling's book factfulness um or looking him up on on ted talks or youtube so he does a lot of good stuff on that so but i think that for the want of a better word developing uh countries economies we need to we they need to grow but they need to because that's ultimately what will will raise up the parts of the world which are poor Um, i think the rich countries need to play their part Um, i think in some respects they are there's a lot of lot of support that is given i think it probably needs to be an order of magnitude bigger than it is to make a real difference Um, and that growth needs to happen in a sustainable way what we and we have to find an intelligent way for that to happen because the last thing we want to do is say well don't make the same mistake we did so that means that your economy is not going to grow because well we cut down all of our forests and we mined all of our minerals and that's why we're rich but you can't do the same thing right we can't, that can't be the end of the conversation we have to we have to find a way in which we can everybody's everybody's standard of living can grow and wealth can grow but in a way in which where we do avoid the mistakes that we did that 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 we did um by you know using our natural resources in an unsustainable way and i think there are lots of great ideas about how we can do that and i think they need to be enacted on more um vigorously i don't think there's one answer but i think there's lots of great ideas
0: 100 percent. no i entirely agree with you nick thank you very much for your your kind of um, advice um, on that front—it's really interesting. Um, and you spoke a little bit about a while ago about the uh, the W. Uh, is it, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. The WCS. Yes. Is that right? That's um, right. Is, and that's American. Is that right? It's uh a, well yes, its headquarters are in New York. Yeah. So just to kind of fill me in a little bit more about that kind of outstanding project.
1: Yeah. So um look, it's uh it started in 1895 as the New York Zoological Society um, and. To this day, um, the Wildlife Conservation Society (WCS) still runs the Bronx Zoo and Central Park Zoo and the aquariums in New York. Um, but, and I think actually, I believe that the history of our international programs was going and collecting specimens to put in the zoo. Um, and you know, we've been some been some troubled history in that regard. And if anybody who knows anything about it or looks into it will find that, you know, that's there's been has prob- been problematic at times. Um, and I think we're moving past that um now as an organization. And our international programs are growing now to be larger than the zoo. Um, uh, and look, I, for the record, I think that, you know, I'm a little bit squeamish about zoos at the best of times, but I do think that they actually serve a really important role because there's plenty of people in New York who would never see a wild animal if it well, wild an animal if it weren't for the fact that they you know they saw it in a zoo, so I think they have a really important role of outreach and raising awareness and I think if they're run properly and and they are a front for not a front that kind of come came across wrong but um, I think they can play a really important role if they're combined with it, um, conservation programs and so so yeah, like I said before i mean sixty five countries around the world um, most uh, we have a very strong um, research emphasis um, I think I said earlier on that you can't protect what you don't understand you have to understand um, the ecosystems that you're working in and collecting informa- scientific information informs your protection strategy because you know that okay the elephants they behave in this way they always go to the fruiting trees or at this in the dry season they always go to this waterhole and then you can adapt your conservation measures to account for that information that you have so we're a we're, I, yeah we're, we're a bit of a powerhouse I would say when it comes to um, the scientific understanding uh, of the natural world um, and increasingly in response to the th- increasing threats that are happening um, to in protected areas and to wild spaces and wild animals we've had to become much more of a of, of conservation managers not just understanding it, but actually actively trying to protect it. And that's been a, as a response, I think, to, look, I mean, we could sit here and we could exchange statistics all day and they're all pretty depressing. I mean, like these huge declines in um, uh, wild animal populations. But there's some really encouraging things. Um, the uh, amount of area uh, under conservation measures is increasing. Um, and there's lots of good examples where conservation Protected areas are 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 doing what they are there to do and protecting wild animal populations. Um, so yeah, I mean it's it's a great organisation to work for. I, I really enjoy it, and um, yeah, it's got an inspiring mission.
0: That's great. Yeah, I think that's you know as long as there's that kind of fundamental uh, positive. Um, mentality behind it I think that's that's the, that, that's the most astonishing and pleasing part for me to be honest um, and finally I think um, Nick we're slightly running out of time moving towards 6 o'clock really but um, just a final question for you really I mean you spoke about how um, you kind of moved away um, from some parts of your kind of wildlife career moved on to perhaps the fundraising mm. side of things mm. um, and just kind of looking further ahead into the future uh, just really what's next for you <laughs> that's
1: um a a very reasonable question Ollie and I um maybe for the first time I don't know what to say I don't have the words I'm not sure I don't know I mean yeah I've I'd as long I think as long as I'm making a what by my own very subjective measure a meaningful contribution to this um this part of life on this planet then I'll be happy so um, I'm very stimulated by the interface between the private sector and, and, uh, and protected areas um, and, and public policy. So I think that I'd like to continue to exist there. I'm really, I think it's a really interesting question, how do protected areas sustainably finance themselves? I, I think that we don't have, we, we've got lots of good answers, but no one... Good, my mm, complete solution answer, right. to that so um i'd be very happy to spend the next decade of my career trying to answer that question and and um making a small contribution to to making sure that our wild places and wild animals are well financed and uh, continue to be protected
0: wow what an inspiring and uh, i fascinating journey story kind of you know points of everything really about you nick it's just been great to really listen to so i really really appreciate that well thank Um, you for having me in no thank you for being our very first um guest upon the ob um radio podcast so yeah really really appreciate again nick thank you so so much for coming in and giving up your time for our viewers and for us here in the studio today and uh, yeah it's been a pleasure so thank you everyone for listening um out there and uh yeah we'll be back uh next week on the 11th of november so yeah great thanks again nick and uh yeah good evening everyone probably the best school radio station in the world this is
1: Bry radio
0: proudly sponsored by the bpa